Hello, everybody. I'm Mary Caldor, and I'm director, co-director of the Centre for the Study of Global Governance. And I'm really happy to be chairing today uh, this Ralph Miliband lecture, which is going to be given by Robert Skidelsky. Robert Skidelsky is one of my oldest friends. <laughs> he taught me his politics at Oxford. And uh, he's also, as all of you know, the biographer of Keynes. He's written a magnificent three-volume biography of Keynes. And it's very exciting that he's just brought out this new book, which I meant to hold and wave to you all, but I left it on the table. Um, <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, which is about the relevance of Keynes for today. So that's great. So, Robert. It's a great honor to be giving the Miliband Lecture. I was a great admirer of Ralph, um, and um, I don't think I'm revealing any uh, secrets uh, when I say that when he applied for a professorship at Warwick University, at which I then was, I was on the selection committee. And um, I made what I thought was an extremely eloquent statement of the case for appointing him. Um, uh, I, I really excel myself, and um, at the end of it, um, he got one vote, uh, my own. Um, I hope my advocacy of Keynes uh, this evening will be uh, more kindly received. Um, Keynes ended the general theory with these words. Um, the ideas of economists and political philosophers, both when they are right and when they are wrong, are more powerful than is commonly understood. Indeed, the world is ruled by little else. Practical men, who believe themselves to be quite exempt from intellectual influences, are usually the slaves of some defunct economist. Madmen in authority, who, um, who hear voices in the air, are distilling their frenzy from some academic scribbler of a few years back. And he said, I'm sure that the power of vested interest is vastly exaggerated compared to the general encroachment of ideas. And then to drive home the point, uh, sooner or late it is ideas, not vested interests, which are dangerous for good or evil. And ideas versus vested interests is really the subject of my talk uh, this evening. Is it to the wrong ideas of the economists or to the vested interests of the power holders that we should turn to explain the present deep recession. The first focuses attention on the intellectual system of contemporary capitalism, the second on its power structure. In setting up the debate this way, I'm uh, conscious of perpetrating the fallacy of the excluded middle. Uh, there's a third possibility more correct, which relates the dominant ideas in any period to its structures of power in a non-contradictory way. But for the purposes of this, um, this lecture, uh, Miliband lecture, I shall treat them as alternative explanations of what has gone wrong. In shorthand, Keynes versus Marx. This is apt because Keynes thought he had refuted Marx. Well, 
The book I've just written, Keynes' The Return of the Master, concentrates on the ideas which got us into, into our present mess, and particularly the ideas of the economists. As I wrote, to understand the crisis, we need to get beyond the blame game, for at the root of the crisis was not failures of character or competence, but a failure of ideas. I have behind that the authority of Alan Greenspan, famed master of the universe in his days as chairman of the Fed, who confessed that the banking collapse of last autumn had left his intellectual edifice, those are his words, in ruin. I call this edifice Chicago Economics for shorthand, though this is not entirely fair to Greenspan, who had a strong dose of Schumpeter in his intellectual makeup. But I think Chicago economics is a reasonable short description of the dominant economics of the last three decades, taught in universities and business schools and knocked into the heads of bankers and asset managers. Its main idea is that markets don't get things wrong and governments usually do. Markets are efficient, Shares are always correctly priced. In the name of these doctrines, financial and other markets were extensively deregulated. Governments pushed aside. Capital left free to roam the world in search of the highest returns. The era of boom and bust is over, declared no less than Gordon Brown. <laughs> Um, he doesn't um, use that language today, neither does he use the language of prudence, which was his <laughs> code word, his, his favorite word for all the time he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. As Paul Krugman says, this Chicago economics was a romanticized, sanitized version of economic life, which led economists and policymakers to ignore all the things that could go wrong. Economics went astray because, I quote Krugman, economists as a group mistook beauty clad in impressive-looking mathematics for truth. Now, it's obvious, I think, to any historian of ideas that these Chicago doctrines were an updated, super-mathematicized version of the ideas Keynes had challenged 70 years earlier. Politicians, regulators, bankers, money managers, financial journalists became slaves not to defunct economists, but to a cluster of Nobel Prize winning economists who held chairs in the vicinity of Chicago University. The practical men were simply following the latest fashion in economic ideas. Things have speeded up since Keynes' day. Nowadays, you don't have to be defunct to be fashionable. You just need to be regressive, provided you can dress up your regressive outlook in maths. Keynes said four things which he thought were obvious. He said these were obvious ideas in, in, the, in the general theory. First, we don't know nearly as much about the future as we think we do, and therefore financial markets can crash. Alan Greenspan admitted the truth of this when he said that the crisis was caused by the I quote, underpricing of risk worldwide. That could not have happened had financial markets been efficient. Second, Keynes said that when markets suffer big shocks, they don't self-correct quickly, but start shrinking like a leaky balloon as people stop spending. 
we have just experienced such a shrinking. In the last year, the American economy has shrunk by 7%. Americans are $800 billion poorer than they were a year ago. When America sneezes, this is still true today, the world catches a cold, and the world economy has deflated, more or less in line with America's. Britain's by 5.5%. Third, Keynes said that to make up for the decline of private spending, governments should inject extra spending into the economy. Keynes is the original inventor of the stimulus. Um, this is in striking contrast to what happened between 1929 and 1932. Then, governments didn't believe that contracting economies might need stimulating. They did what they normally did, balanced their budgets and kept money tight, hoping that this would restore confidence. As a result, the American and the world economy experienced 12 successive quarters of contraction. This time, governments did the opposite. They did stimulate, and the contraction has been limited to four months, with green shoots of recovery, as everyone tells us, sprouting out all over the place. Finally, Keynes said that the market system needed central management if it was to work for everyone's benefit. There's one very important passage in the general theory which opens its last chapter, and in it Keynes wrote this, the outstanding faults of the economic society in which we live are its failure to provide for full employment and its arbitrary and inequitable distribution of wealth and incomes. The bearing of the foregoing theory, that's the theory of the general theory, on the first of these is obvious, but there are also important respects in which it is relevant to the second. The general theory, in other words, sets out to explain the fact of persisting mass unemployment. Its subject matter was not the arbitrary and inequitable distribution of wealth and incomes, which we associate with the Marxist and more generally the socialist critique of capitalism. In policy terms, Keynes wanted governments to make sure that there was always enough aggregate demand, private and public, in the economy to maintain full employment. But he also thought it would be much easier to do this if wealth and incomes were more equally distributed. And I'll come to that later on. Let me elaborate on these four points, emphasizing their relevance to what is happening at the moment. The first concerns the volatility of investment markets. The whole of our investment machine works on the theory that we can accurately price risk. It is, if this were so, then of course, banks and companies would never go bust. Keynes made a crucial distinction between risk and uncertainty. We can, we can accurately price some risk. We know we can. For example, the game of roulette is not subject to uncertainty. We know the odds. Similarly, with the chance of drawing a willing lottery number. We can accurately estimate the prospective returns on many kinds of investments over a specified period of time. But over a much larger class of investments, we simply don't know what the yield will be. Nevertheless, he writes, the necessity for action and decision compels us as practical men to do our best to overlook this awkward fact and to behave exactly as we would 
if we had behind us a good Benthamite calculation of a series of prospective advantages and disadvantages, each multiplied by its appropriate probability, waiting to be summed. The fact of our ignorance forces us to fall back on certain conventions, of which the most important are that the present will continue into the future, that existing share prices correctly sum up future prospects, and that if most people believe something, they must be right. Such conventions don't necessarily conform to any fundamentals that economists uh, and business analysts uh, uh, love talking about. They're not external objective truth, but mental inventions of buyers and sellers. And Keynes particularly emphasized the state of confidence, a kind of socialized belief about what prices should be, which would be irrelevant, the state of confidence, if we had correct probabilities. Conventional expectations, he said, are compatible with a considerable stability in our affairs as long as the convention holds. But they are liable to sudden overturn when some bit of bad news comes, precisely because there is no firm basis of conviction to hold them steady. Then, and I'm quoting now, the practice of certainty and security suddenly breaks down. New fears and hopes will without warning take charge of human conduct. All these pretty polite techniques of the boardroom collapse. And this is exactly what happened last autumn. It was as if you're going upstairs in the dark and tread on a top step which isn't there. Now, the banking collapse of last autumn and it opened an interesting debate between those economists, the vast majority, who believe that people's behavior is rational and those who believe that it's irrational. Those who believe in irrational behavior argue like this. If people are rational, crashes can't happen. As, they, as crashes do happen, they must be irrational, <coughs> at least some of the time. This seems to be the chief premise of behavioral economics. However, this sharp opposition between rational and irrational behavior is only plausible if one accepts a strong version of the rational expectations hypothesis. For Chicago econ economists, the rational individual is someone who behaves in accordance with a mathematical model of individual decision-making the Chicago economists have agreed to call rational. And the most efficient uh, application of that Chicago model is the efficient market theory. Believers in efficient markets hold that market participants have all the information needed to make sound pricing decisions, that they process this information efficiently, and, they, and trade establishes contingent equilibria between the opposing forces of supply and demand at each moment in time. Market participants do not make mistakes on the average so that current asset prices correctly sum up future prospects. In other words, what Keynes called a convention to disguise from us the fact that we don't know what the future will hold is treated by these models as true statements concerning the path of share values over time. A model of this kind finds it very hard to account for large sudden swings in share prices. So, uh, rational expectations hypothesis economists 
say that this must be due either to surprises or confusion or to irrational behavior. The assumption that even if the whole world is ignorant of the correct prices, these correct prices exist somewhere out there, reminds me of nothing so much as the famous parody of Bishop Barclay's idealist theory of knowledge. You probably, some of you at least, will have heard of it. There was a young man who said God must find it exceedingly odd if he thinks that this tree continues to be when there's no one around in the quad. To which God replies, Dear sir, your astonishment's odd. I'm always around in the quad. And therefore this tree will continue to be since observed by yours faithfully, God. <laughs> um, jettison the premise of perfect or complete information and the domain of rationality is liberated from its neoclassical chains. My dictionary defines rational as reasonable, using reasonable logic to think out a problem. Keynes asks, what expectations is it reasonable for people to hold in face of uncertainty? He argues that in most cases it will be conventional expectations, even herd behavior, that epitome of irrational exuberance, um, is reasonable if there's nothing more solid to hold on to. So he didn't abandon the rationality postulate. He simply asked how it would work if the future were unknown. Um, and I believe that behavioral economics, despite its neurological um, insights, is not the key to any new economics um, that we need to develop in the light of what's happened um, in the last two years. Now consider that favorite of elementary economics textbooks. And I'm quoting from one of the most popular ones. When economies suffer a shock, wages and prices rapidly adjust, so there is continuous or almost continuous full employment. <clears throat> yes, yet we know they don't adjust that quickly, and economists have invented all a lot of fancy theories to explain what they call sticky prices. But it's Keynes's explanation that shines through most clearly. Prices are sticky, he says, because following a shock, no one knows what the new correct price is. Things have to settle down a bit before the new pattern of wages and prices discloses itself, and that leaves enough time for output to fall and heavy unemployment to develop. Now, I think the, in, this interpretation of the sticky price phenomenon was first put forward by Axel Leonhufud in the 1960s. I, I don't know whether anyone is, even knows about him today, but he was a, a towering figure in the, in the economics of, 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 of the, you know, about the 1960s and 70s. And I think his interpretation is superior to those theories of imperfect information developed by later New Keynesian uh, uh, economists like Akerlof and Stiglitz. According to Leon Hufud, the, the emergence of unemployed resources is a predictable consequence of a decline in nominal demand when traders uh, don't have perfect information on what the new clearing, mar market clearing prices will be. In line with the Swedish school, Leon Hufud emphasizes the fact that economic processes take place in time 
And therefore, following a disturbance, the economy is in a temporary state of disequilibrium. Output and prices both adjust, but prices adjust slower than output because there's no what he called Valrasian auctioneer available to establish a vector of market-clearing prices before the trading starts. No other assumption, he says, is needed to get from classical economics to Keynes to Keynes, and I agree with that. Again, even here, uncertainty is the key to the successful analysis of sticky prices. Now, what about the third point, uh, the need for offsetting government action when an economy starts sliding? Virtually everyone now accepts that shocked economies need some kind of stimulating to come back to life, to resume normal life. Even Robert Lucas, the high priest of Chicago economics, concedes that we're all Keynesians in the foxhole. Whether because of uncertainty, confusion, imperfect information, or whatever, unemployment develops, which may persist for a long time. And um, so there is a case for some government action. Now, Keynes gave an elaborate explanation of what he called underemployment equilibrium and how it gets established. And we can apply quite easily to the present situation. And this is very elementary to people who, who are doing economics. But I think it's worth just mentioning because it's, it's one of his neatest um, pieces of apparatus. Um, we start from full employment but with a large number of people highly indebted. And that's really the case today. Um, this doesn't matter as long as there's a next step up the staircase. But suddenly the next step is no longer there, and a lot of people find themselves living beyond their means, just as Gordon Brown did. Um, <laughs> the only remedy they have available is to reduce their spending, to economize. Um, uh, to save and, uh, uh, and, and in the last 12 months the British economy has contracted um, by about 5.5% or about 70 billion pounds that means that people's incomes have shrunk on average by 70 billion and that means 70 billion pounds less is being spent compared to last year now what happens if households and firms all try to increase their saving at the same time well then, total spending in the economy will fall even more, since everyone's spending is someone else's income. There will be even less demand for goods and services and therefore for labor. In other words, our attempts to get back into balance by saving more will have made us all poorer and in fact reduced the amount of saving as well, since we'll have smaller incomes out of which to save. So the economy will go on shrinking until the excess saving is eliminated by the growing poverty of the community. <clears throat> the essence of this insight, <clears throat> which I think is a very powerful one, is captured in the phrase, the fallacy of composition. The fallacy consists in the belief that what is true of all the parts individually is true of the whole. And Keynes's most famous um, application of this was the paradox of thrift. More saving is good when the economy is overheating because it's a way of removing excess demand. But when the economy is sliding down, private virtue becomes public vice. Um, and the correct response, 
um, uh, when an economy is going downhill is not to save more but to spend more uh, that in a nutshell is the, uh, uh, is, the, is the theory of the stimulus now conservative economists have had to uh, reconcile their acceptance of the need for stimulus in the foxhole um, with their dislike of any government activism it's a difficult, difficult uh, balancing act their solution is to draw on Milton Friedman's explanation of the Great Depression of 1929 to 1932. Following Friedman's lead, they explain the current meltdown in terms of the collapse of the money supply. Um, they don't quite explain why this, but obviously mistakes in policy are always at the root of any conservative explanation of why markets go wrong, because by definition markets can't go wrong unless there are mistakes in policy. So the collapse of the money supply is due to some mistake in policy, and, 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 then, and so they then argue that a sufficient condition for the restoration of, the full, of full employment is a reversal of the collapse in the money supply. Hence the only stimulus measure conservative economists approve of and this goes for conservative politicians with a capital C is quantitative easing or more familiarly printing money a strange conclusion for conservative economists only explicable because their hatred of governments outweighs their hatred of inflation um, in December last year, Robert Lucas, again, I think he's an excellent source for many of these arguments, because it shows I'm not inventing them, um, wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal entitled, Ben Bernanke is the best stimulus right, right now, where he argued that the Fed's monetary policy had been the most helpful counter-recession action taken to date, in my opinion, and it will continue to have many advantages. It's fast and flexible. There's no other way that so much cash could have been put into the system as this $600 billion was, and if necessary, it can be taken out just as quickly. The cash comes in the form of loans, and this is the point. It entails no new government enterprises, no government equity positions in private enterprises, no price fixing or other controls on the operation of individual businesses, and no government role in the allocation of capital across different virtues. These seem to me, uh, different activities, these seem to me important virtues. Now, there's also a debate going on about this now. Uh, and, you know, these are debates that... This is why I don't think economics is really a science, because these debates are interminable. They went on at the beginning of the 19th century, they went on during the time of the Great Depression, and they've reappeared in exactly the same form today. Now, in, in a natural science, this doesn't happen. There are no, theory, there are no believers in the, the theory of the phlogiston, phlogiston theory of energy uh, uh, or in Ptolemaic, um, uh, Ptolemaic astronomy any longer, but this debate, particularly debate about the quantity of money, goes on and on and on. And in its present form, it's embodied, um, the, the quantity monetarist theory is embodied by, represented by Tim Congdon. And I, and, I, and I cite him because I've had a big argument with him about this. In a, in a rebuttal um, of Krugman's defense of fiscal expansion, Condon says that in the real world, non-fiscal influences, that is quantitative easing, are much more important, powerful than changes in the budget balance. And for all practical purposes, fiscal policy is irrelevant. In practical terms, 
Quantitative easing means that the central government just prints money. It purchases government patent corporate bonds from banks and other financial institutions. The creation of this new money is supposed to speed the increase, uh, increase the overall money supply through deposit multiplication, encouraging lending and reduction in the cost of borrowing, and that stimulates new enterprise and so on. Indeed, in an email exchange, Congan assured me that if policymakers boosted real money by 10% in six months, any economy will recover. And he challenged me to um, give a single instance when that hadn't been true. Well, we have an instance right now. Um, uh, since March, the Bank of England has embarked on a 175 billion asset purchase program. It's actually put 142 billion pounds into the economy, extra, extra cash. And that has failed to translate to, into increased lending. Of course, to some extent, the banks can be blamed for this. Cheap interest rates have been used to improve bank uh, balance sheets. Since October last year, profit margins measured as the spread between swap rates and the mortgage rates has more than tripled. But this isn't the biggest problem. On the 4th of September, that is six months, Congdon's test after the launch of the quantitative easing program, Stephen Major, head of global fixed income at HSBC, was quoted in the Financial Times um, as saying, the vast majority of the liquidity is stuck in the banks in the form of reserves, but this is not about banks holding because they're afraid to lend. It is more about a weak economy where households and corporates do not want to borrow. This sentiment has been echoed by many others. Um, people are in no mood to bother, borrow, says um, John Wraith of RBC Capital Markets. It's not just banks hoarding. You can't lend if people don't want to borrow. And all of this was recognized by Keynes in 1932 when he wrote, it may still be the case that the lender with his confidence shattered by his experience, will continue to ask for new enterprise rates of interest which the borrower cannot be expected to earn. If this proves to be so, there will be no means of escape from prolonged and perhaps interminable depression except by direct state intervention to promote and subsidize new, new investment. And the reason for this is that in a recession, monetary policy alone can't get the long-term rate of interest sufficiently low to achieve full employment in the face of liquidity preference. And this preference, as the evidence uh, shows, exists both on the lender and the borrower side. In other words, quantitative easing provides the fuel, but fuel alone cannot get the economic engine going. Confidence, the ignition of any economic activity is being killed by uncertainty. And that's why quantitative easing has not actually um, stopped the slide. It may have, had a, 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 it may have had made some contribution, and I'm not denying the need for quantitative easing, but if you say, well, why has the slide stopped? I believe there's a simple Keynesian explanation. Between February and September of this year, the monthly budget deficit went from 9 billion to 16 billion, 
um, this is a month, which represents an injection of 35 billion of extra spending in the economy. And I think that has been an important part of the stimulus. Far from being totally insignificant, irrelevant, um, uh, useless, dangerous, as, as, as the monetarists say, it has been a material factor in stopping our slide down uh, into the Great Depression. And conservative Treasury spokesmen like George Osborne, who demand a cut in government spending now, don't explain how this will help the economy to recover. The fact is that our economy is on a life support system and it would be madness to withdraw it until we have substantial evidence of renewed growth. And that is whatever the cost of the drip. Um, to summarize this part of the argument, you can see how uncertainty comes into Keynesian economics at various points. First, in explaining the uh, instability uh, of investment. Um, secondly, um, the, the, uh, uh, the um, uh, 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 uncertainty attaching um, to the failure of wages and prices to adjust instantaneously. And thirdly, uncertainty um, about the uh, future course of interest rates. Today, these sources of uncertainty have been concealed by a veil of risk management strategies um, and an exaggerated belief in the market's ability to self-correct. Uh, credit default swaps allow investors and money traders to insure against losses incurred as a result of bad decisions, and rational expectations are assumed to lead to near instantaneous adjustments of, 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 of nominal variables. However, as our present predicament shows, the greatest challenge to our economic system is not risk. AIG and other insurers wouldn't, wouldn't, would have kept afloat if risk had been the only problem. It's uncertainty. The big question, therefore, is not how best to repackage uncertainty in the form of risk, but how to design an economic system which takes uncertainty seriously. Well, what of the future? Um, I would pick out two main elements in the Keynesian political economy, uh, looking at, at a, a permanent system. The first, basic Keynesianism, maintain aggregate spending at a continuously high level. Hence, you need to re-establish in some form or other a full employment commitment. And secondly, uh, well, as part of that, full employment is to be maintained by fiscal and not monetary policy. The Keynesian recipe was to raise taxes in a boom and lower them in a downturn. He didn't believe in using interest rates for cycle control precisely because he thought it would be difficult to get long-term rates down once they'd become too high for changed conditions. Am I simply an unqualified admirer of Keynes? The answer is not entirely. There's no doubt that Keynesian policy as applied in Great Britain in the 1950s and 1960s relied excessively on fine-tuning, and I don't think we should follow that route today. Secondly, I think it was missing an absolutely crucial piece um, of, um, of uh, you might say, uh, economic uh, theory, and that is the theory of the natural rate of unemployment. Um, that was uh, the essential contribution of Milton Friedman, who always described himself actually as a Keynesian, though it's often forgotten. But that, 
if that had been there, I don't think governments in the 1960s would have tried to maintain an overfull uh, rate of, uh, of, of, of employment by using, trying to use prices and incomes policies, which couldn't work, and discredited um, Keynes in demand management um, in the 1970s, in a way I'll explain later. Now, the second element, I think, in the Keynesian political economy, <clears throat> uh, Keynes thought that full employment would be much easier to maintain if wealth and income were more equally distributed both domestically and internationally. Too much wealth piled up in too few hands makes economies unstable. And for that reason, Keynes would have favored a more equal distribution of purchasing power than we now have. And for much the same reason, he would have favored a more equal distribution of international reserves, something he tried but failed to achieve in his clearing uh, uh, clearing Union Plan of 1941. And I, I'd be happy to answer questions on that, but it's too big a subject to go into at the moment. Now, let me, having talked about the ideas, ideas, wrong ideas is the explanation for the current mess, let me now turn to vested interests. In an essay I wrote on Karl Marx in 2000, I said that Marx's labor theory of value was dead, that his theory of the class struggle may have had some validity in the past, but was dead also. But that, it, but that in the event of large-scale economic crises, the discourse will change again. And that time has come. Keynes believed that the power of ideas, his own ideas, would kill Marx permanently. But he never considered the possibility that his own ideas might be at the mercy of changes in the power structures of Western society. If one, were, if one were to attempt, however briefly, a structural analysis of the present crisis of capitalism, one might start with the balance of forces that existed to make possible Keynes's own revolution. As described by John Kenneth Galbraith, the post-war economies of the West, and he had chiefly the American economy in mind, but, but, um, but uh, Tony Crossland applied it to the British economy uh, society as well. The, the post-war economies of the West had three countervailing powers, capital, labor, and government. Now, today, just one of them, capital, remains the single prevailing power. And this brings one close to the conditions of the Industrial Revolution, which were, which were brilliantly analyzed by Marx. Marx failed to see the unavoidable consequences of economic and technological revolution, which were going on be, 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 um, before his eyes. These consequences, as summarized by one economic historian, were the change of social stratification, with the shift of political power to the middle classes and the rise of strong labor unions capable of making their growing aspirations felt under a system of widening franchise. This not only democratized the spirit of modern government, but created the new administrative key position for a progressive control of economic by political forces. In other words, Marx missed the growth of a social balance between business labor and government. 
And this balance dominated the political economy of the 1950s through to the mid-1970s. But then it all changed. In a penetrating analysis, a Washington economist argues, before 1980, economic policy was designed to achieve full employment and the economy was characterized by a system in which wages grew with productivity. This configuration created a virtuous circle of growth. Rising wages meant robust aggregate demand which contributed to full employment. Full employment in turn provided an incentive to invest which increased productivity, thereby supporting higher wages. But after 1980 or thereabouts, a new economic paradigm established itself based on, I quote, asset price inflation, equities and housing, widening income inequality, detachment of worker wages from productivity growth, rising household and corporate leverage ratios measured respectively in debt income and debt equity ratios, a strong dollar, he's talking about the United States, but this applies pari passu to Britain as well, trade deficits, disinflation or low inflation, and manufacturing job losses. Workers were pressured on four sides, by globalization, by reduction in the size of government, by the increase of labor market flexibility and the retreat from the full employment commitment. Well, labor laws were weakened and membership of trade unions was sharply reduced. Now, what accounts for this shift? I think this is a very, very difficult question to answer. Um, and there are, there are a number of causes. And I think the factors we should consider, though they're not exclusive and they're not to be considered in isolation from each other, are as follows. First, the consolidation of big business and banking. The degree of concentration has increased. For example, five banks control over 80% of UK lending. We were told that we were creating competitive markets in all our deregulating policies. In fact, we created a global network of interlinked oligopolies. Second, there's been a major political shift. There was a major political shift uh, towards the right, and in the UK at any rate, this was um, largely influenced uh, by, um, by uh, hostility to overpowerful trade unions. Uh, the, uh, there was, there was a, what, what undoubtedly happened in the 1970s was an increase in the monopoly power of organized labor, which turned people against uh, the unions, even their own members. In other words, in the 1970s, the trade unions threatened to become the prevailing power. Labor government programs in the early 1970s, and I lived through that period, uh, envisaged a trade union state or trade union state uh, sort of uh, uh, system of government to run the economy with only a minor role left for private business. And Thatcherism was the political reaction to that. So I think there was a political shift just because the Keynesian consensus, which had sustained the, ba the balance of the post-war economy, had started to break down when the balance started to break down. Third factor, globalization. Globalization was based on the export of manufacturing jobs, 
where unions were strong, and rebuilding the economy on the basis of service industry where they were weak. Globalization was the business response to the declining rate of profit, which Marx predicted. It was seen as the master key to overall improvement in the position of the business class. Globalization increased corporate profits, reduced the prices of consumer goods, and made possible a huge influx of outside money into the Western banking system. But most important, it was used as a bludgeon to frighten workers and to emasculate their economic and political power. Interestingly, Marx supported free trade because he wrote, the free trade system is destructive. It breaks up nationalities and pushes the antagonism of the proletariat and the bourgeoisie to the extreme point. In a word, free trade hastens the social revolution. These warnings were ignored by the creators of the Washington Consensus. Then a fourth factor, on the intellectual side, the rehabilitation of the market and the denigration of the state. The counter-revolution in economics, starting with Friedman and adaptive expectations and ending with the new classicals and rational expectations, all that rehabilitation of the market was a very important factor in the dismantling of the Keynesian system. Now, the rehabilitation of the market didn't entirely depend on new classical models. Also, there was a revival of Schumpeterian models. The idea that capitalism depended on creative destruction, on heroic entrepreneurs. Too much stability destroyed capitalism's dynamic. So we must, in the words of Magna Desai, who's been a professor of economics here, um, and uh, one of my oldest friends, so we must ride the surf and learn to enjoy it. Because unless we do... Um, capitalism will stagnate. And coupled with this was the justification of super profits as the reward for super enterprise. Then I think a fifth factor, more institutional, um, uh, was the hegemony of right-wing think tanks and journalists who simplified and popularized the academic celebration of markets and revulsion against big government. One consequence of all this it was that the welfare state as the basis of the social contract was dismantled and replaced by access to credit. To quote um, one um, American analyst, maintaining growth of spending on consumption requires continued excessive borrowing and continued reduction in the savings rate Continued excessive borrowing requires ever-increasing asset prices and debt-income ratios. Hence, the systematic need for bubbles, which eventually, burst, which eventually burst. Meanwhile, when the savings rate hits zero, little further reduction is possible. Consequently, both drivers of demand eventually exhaust themselves. So both at the top and at the bottom of this system in which median incomes have become increasingly sort of uh, spread, um, uh, you, you, you had, you had um, speculation and over-leveraging. Um, and the policy and the, and the triumph of corporate globalization accelerated the process and transformed it into a financial crash. So where do we go at this point? 
it's probably impossible as well as desirable, undesirable to restore trade unions as a countervailing power in the Anglo-American type of economies dominated by a service sector and high-tech manufacturer. Now, I think they do. There's much more of a balanced type of economy, much more of a balanced type of economy this kind of survives on the continent of Europe, especially in Germany, but it's gone from the Anglo-American model. And I don't know, I don't see how you can restore it in our type of economy. The liberal solution of breaking up concentrations of big business, um, trust-busting, um, as the Americans used to call it, is probably unavailable in the increasingly integrated global market. Though I would go, if it were at all possible, for a restoration of the Glass-Steagall approach to banking. I believe that would be one way of trying to break up the corporate banking system um, and, and separate out different functions of banking. But no one is prepared to do that at the moment. And, and so what they're really talking about is something um, milder, which is um, some forms of financial regulation which aim to secure financial stability via um, uh, either increasing capital and reserve ratios or um, using them counter-cyclically um, so that in bad times, in good times, banks would be required to hold higher ratios and in bad times they would be allowed to hold lower ratios. I mean, I think that's all helpful, but I think it doesn't quite get to the heart of the matter because I think banks will actually uh, be able to cheat on those. And I think they're, they're cleverer than the regulators. What is capital? Can anyone define capital here? Say so if you talk about them, the banks must increase their capital, um, uh, capital uh, ratios, capital, uh, you know, uh, ratios to, 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 the, to their deposits. They can always somehow say, well, this is capital, you know. Um, so I think, I think the regulators will lose on that one in the end. Now, another, another uh, argument is national states can't control global capital, and therefore there's nothing we can do uh, because a world state is unavailable and probably undesirable as well. But a single world model of globalization is not the only one. It's far more plausible to think of global integration developing via regional integration, and that offers a more feasible route to reinserting democratic oversight of the economy. And I think the European Union is, 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 is a very positive development. It, it hasn't got, uh, there's no strong state there. Um, but this, is a, this seems to me to be one way in which, through the development of powerful regional bodies, that we can try to control global capital. But I'm not saying that we're, we're, um, we're there, and, uh, and, and to get a system that doesn't um, crash every few years with increasingly serious social consequences does require an enormous effort of thought. Keynes repeatedly said that he had not come to destroy the market system. His aim was to make the world safe for markets and markets safe for the world.
Well, thank you, Robert. That was a really brilliant tour d'horizon, and I hope we all know what Keynes stood for now. Uh, we have half an hour, I think, for questions. So who would like to ask a question? Okay. Down here at the front. I'll go, shall I go up to there? Which do you prefer? Um, uh, I'll, I'll do it here. Does this yeah, work? Yeah, it works. Okay. Um, you were talking about the models that they use and the efficient I market. think you must switch it on. And by the way, everybody, just say who you are because it's quite interesting. Oh, I'm David and I'm a student currently, but I'd just like to know, you were talking about the efficient market hypothesis. How do you think we can change that so that we can predict how people act and put that into a model? Because we need something to go by, don't we? Um, uh, no, uh, not necessarily. We, 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 we can predict a lot of these economic behavior, but I think in certain, in certain, do I have to switch this up, um, or is it already on? In, in certain crucial areas, particularly affecting long-term investment, we don't have, uh, we don't have um, uh, prediction, uh, these, these predictive um, tools available, because there's genuine uncertainty. Um, and I don't think we can develop models um, which, uh, which deal with, with, with um, which, which uh, translate all uncertainty in, into risk. And therefore, we have to do without it. Now, what, what, what are the consequences of, 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 of having an economics in which um, uncertainty is taken seriously? Um, that, I think, is, uh, is, one, is, is one very important question. One thing that will, um, uh, uh, I think, comfort all uh, or encourage all people who feel um, slightly challenged in maths is that, um, as I do, is that it will, it will really um, encourage an economics which places less reliance on maths and places more reliance on other, other um, ways of uh, understanding human behavior. Uh, and, and, and I have at the end of my book, I've got a, a rather brief sketch for how one could reform the teaching of economics. Um, and uh, I think it, it, people are have become rather interested in this just because they think economics is useless for most, <laughs> most many, many crucial problems in the real world. It's fine for pricing a transport system or something like that. But, I mean, in, 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 the fallacy of composition is, is, um, is, is a very important insight that Keynes had, that the parts don't add up to the whole. You can't get the whole just from analyzing the parts. And so, so you've got to t think about the distinction between microeconomics and macroeconomics very seriously and not assume that you can get your macroeconomic outcomes just through um, the, the uh, study of, of, of the assumptions that govern microeconomics, rational, rational individual uh, maximization. Now, I think, um, uh, but I, it's not, I'm not saying I've got an answer to your question. All I'm saying is that the quest for an entirely predictable economic, uh, Predictable economics is, is, is a false one. Economics is not a natural science. It's not physics using different words. Okay, over there. And we have one there. And I'm looking at the back. I've seen you right up there at the back. So you're next. Sir, thank you. My, my name's John Yeoman. Now, my question is just, just how do we try to cut the current deficit without running the risk, that is, of deepening the, deepening the recession. 
I remember your story yeah. of Roosevelt. Why don't you tell it? Which was that? Uh, uh, <laughs> you told it. I to don't. Me. I have no memory left of anything. The story what? is that Keynes met Roosevelt, and Roosevelt said, "I'm very impressed by everything. I've read all your work, but I just can't cut this damn." Deficit. deficit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How do I cut the deficit? Yeah, yes. yeah. No, the answer is um, you don't uh, cut the deficit now. Um, you um, you allow it to expand to whatever um, to whatever level is necessary to um, make sure that we don't uh, slide any further. Uh, you see, I think a lot of people don't understand this point. That obviously, um, when you're when you're at full employment, um, one set of um, one set of rules applies, but when you're very well below full employment, you've got to overturn some of these. As the economy recovers, um, as though by magic, a lot of the deficit will disappear because re the re revenues will rise faster than GDP in the recovery phase. And so a lot of the deficit will disappear. Um, then, uh, then, I mean, if you, then you have a, also a medium-term plan four or five years of, of restoring the budget uh, to, to balance. But it's, the task would be much, much greater if, in fact, our economy was 10 or 15 percent below full employment level than, it, than 5 percent, where we seem to have managed to cut off the slide. And I think um, the conservatives, uh, I mean, I, you know, I don't think they're wrong about everything. If I, if I were a conservative, I, I would have, if I were a conservative treasury spokesman, I would have concentrated my attack on, I'm afraid, on, uh, on Gordon's uh, fiscal record before he became prime minister as chancellor of the exchequer. I think it was quite contrary to Keynes to enter a recession with a, a, a budget deficit as, as big as, as, um, as, as we had. And I think that has created confidence issues um, about the deficit which would, would otherwise not have been there. It was Keynes who said that, uh, austeri uh, that the, a boom is a time for austerity at the Treasury. He wanted budget surpluses to be run during a boom, which would then be available for spending in, in, a, in, a, in a recession. And we didn't do that, and as a result, our fiscal position will be worse than it would have been. But the basic point is true. If you start cutting spending now, you're going to deepen the recession and therefore you shouldn't do it. You should allow spending to increase. I think we probably need a further stimulus, but I don't know what, what all the figures are. Yeah, well, I think at least the Labour government says it's not going to cut now, which the Conservatives wanted to do. And I think if the Conservatives were in power, um, they wouldn't cut either. Uh, they couldn't afford to take the political risk of cutting. But um, they're not, and therefore their policies, thankfully, won't be uh, implemented or their avowed policies um, for several months at least. Now I'm going to next take the person right up on my theory of being um, equitable between above and below. <laughs> and then I come to the below. Um, Neil Sabrawal, the Labour Party. Um, <laughs> shouldn't have said that. Um, what do you see as the next bubble? Um, I don't. I don't. Um, I don't have any any um, uh, basis uh, uh, for, for, for accurate prediction. Um, you know, um, uh, having having said that, no one does. It would be rather rather arrogant for me to claim that I do. 
Um, we don't know. What we can be sure about is unless they fix the system in quite a radical way, we will just go from one crisis to another. I think, I think um, what will, what will, what's likely to happen is that the recovery is going to be quite weak and that um, there will be another dip or two. And it will be in the financial system itself. But I don't know exactly which bits of it, and um, I can't say you know, when, it, when, it, when it would happen. I think, I think um, one of the, one of the um, misconceptions, there was a, you know, there was, there's been quite a lot, a lot of discussion. Apparently the Queen um, to, asked an economist at some reception, why didn't... At LSE. It was, was it LSE? Uh, she, <laughs> when was she here? She was here in... in now, what was the date? Because I broke my arm and couldn't, couldn't go. Couldn't come. <laughs> oh, you, missed, you missed her question. Um, yeah. She said, why didn't any economists predict this? And, and, and it was a, it was a good, re, very reasonable question um, in, 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 uh, for someone who had studied new classical economics, which presumably she hadn't. But it was a reasonable question. <laughs> But, but the real answer is it, it was unpredictable in terms of timing. It was one of those, it was one of those you could call it a, a, a Taleb black swan. It was a sort of, uh, it wasn't in the models of, of, uh, that were being used um, uh, uh, at the time. And, and even Keynes couldn't have predicted it exactly. What he could have said, this system is sufficiently unsound for something like this to be always possible. And then when it happened, it wouldn't have surprised him. So um, the answer is um, I can't predict uh, what, the next, uh, what or when the next crash will come. But I think unless we, unless we really take, take um, this one seriously and take the reform of the system seriously, it will happen again. Okay, now I'm now getting lots of people. So I think this time... I'm going to bunch them in three. And on my principle also, not only of equitable distribution, but gender distribution, I'm going to take the lady up there, because we haven't had any, and then you, and then you, and then I'll come on to the next round. Um, hi, I'm Anna. Um, is banking socially useless? So where I can't Sorry, see what, we didn't hear it. Um, is banking socially useless? Um. <laughs> Wait a minute, I'm going to have the other questions, so write that one down. Yeah, if, if, as you just said, and the NIESR has predicted that we'll have a weak and protracted recovery, isn't this the reason that both parties, obviously the Conservatives principally, are very worried about the deficit? Because the growth is not going to deal with it, and basically this could result in a uh, crisis of confidence, particularly in terms of those actually lending to government and the, the government's difficulty, the government's the government's difficulty in borrowing and therefore obviously an increase in, in, in interest rates. Isn't that the reason why there's so much concern in Whitehall and in the Treasury about, about the, the deficit? And then, yeah. My name is Bernard Casey and I'm actually from the University of Warwick as well. Um, if uh, it is a case that uncertainty exists alongside risk and we cannot repackage uncertainty into risk. Somebody has to manage that uncertainty. Who is going to manage that uncertainty and whose ideas are going to drive them? It 
So now we've three, got three. Is cluster three. Is clanking socially useless? Um, uh, no, it isn't. It's very important because it's the conduit by which savings um, uh, are, are transferred into investment, and investment is what drives the economy. What Adair Turner said um, was that um, uh, a lot of the financial um, services or the, the extent of the financial services has ceased to be socially useful. useful. It should be, they should be smaller. And I think uh, also I think um, I was uh, I think I agree completely with um, Gordon Brown when he said that finance should be the servant and not the master um, of industry, a phrase you can find in page 142 of my book. But anyway, um, <laughs> it's always nice um, to, to, to have one's thoughts picked up in that way. Um, though it's, it, you know, I mean, anyone might have really said that. But I think that's, that's the important point. Finance has to serve the economy. It mustn't be master of it. And that means it shouldn't be as, 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 as large, uh, point one, um, in, in, in relation to the whole. And also rewards shouldn't be as large. I mean, these, I mean, these huge rewards um, uh, which, uh, which people in the financial services have been getting are premised on, on the fact that they're adding that amount of value to the economy. Now, if that's not the case, and I don't think it is the case, then I think they should be controlled. Um, and there were many ways of doing it which aren't uh, excessively penal or particularly penal at all. Um, so the answer is yes. I think, I think, um, I think the City of London plays too large a part in, 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 in the British economy. It also, it also has this other effect that it concentrates a huge amount of political power in one place, and that power should be dispersed over the whole economy. You know, it's, it, it, it's, the, it's the idea of trying to get a balanced economy. You just have one set of people who tell the government what to do, essentially, or what, if they don't do, they'll all leave the country and destroy, uh, destroy Britain's only engine, real engine of growth. And I think that's very unhealthy, because it does mean that uh, the government um, is a servant of the bankers, and that they simply exist in order to, to guarantee banking profits. Now, I, I, I think we're, we're uncomfortably enough close to that. Um, to uh, uh, make Marx a rather, um, uh, 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 rather, rather perceptive um, analyst of the way, uh, the way um, capitalism works. And I don't want to be there, and I don't think it's necessary. Second, weak recovery. Um, well, if, if the recovery is weak, um, does that um, increase um, lack of or reduce confidence in the financing of, of, of the government uh, deficit. Um, I don't think there is any real evidence at the moment that um, the government is, is, um, is uh, uh, finding it difficult to place its paper. Um, I, 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 I think this crisis of confidence in, in the finances of the government um, is, is a long way along, um, along the road. I don't think it's there now. And I think it's almost alarmist to believe that it is there. I think people have quite, you know, have a, a, a considerable confidence in the, in, 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 um, the stability of, of government finance. Now, look, I mean, look at it in a comparative point of view. A lot of people are worried about the debt. But, you know, we, the, the worst projections of, of, of the national debt suggest that it will get up to 80, 80% of GDP. 
Now, we ended the Second World War with a national debt of 250 percent of GDP. In 1953, when uh, it, it was down to 150, and those were the start of your, the, your you've never had it so good years. Um, uh, no, I, I, I honestly think I honestly think that's that's unduly unduly alarmist. I, we're not a Latin American, as it used to be said, republic. Sorry, one can't say that today, um, but because um, Latin America has much better finances than it did in the 19th century. But the thing is, we're not we're not um, uh, uh, heading um, in that direction, and I, and I, I don't I don't think um, I don't think we will. Um, who's going to manage uncertainty? That's well, a very good question. At least uh, we start by recognizing its existence and don't think that our only task is to manage risk. Because if you, if you, if you read what they're writing about, they do never use the word uncertainty. It's all risk. Systemic risk, um, uh, uh, how can we manage systemic risk? The trouble was our system of control wasn't sufficient to manage systemic risk. Systemic risk. It's all risk. And if you go on using the word risk, you do, you do um, attend to the belief that there is some super mathematical model that you can devise which can be applied macroeconomically and that will eliminate systemic risk. Um, well, it's not the right approach. Let's, I would prefer to say um, I don't mind about I don't want to eliminate risk. Um, I, I think uh, risky, you know, people should, 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 should take bets um, they should gamble, um, and if their gambles uh, fail, um, they should go bankrupt. But what you can't allow, what you can't allow, is 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 is, is major banks to fail, and especially banks that um, are, are whose, whose whose deposits are guaranteed by the treasury and therefore ultimately by the taxpayer. They, you've got to limit them. And once you recognize that a lot of what they were doing wasn't just risky, but it was actually, um, it was actually playing with uncertainty. They didn't actually know what, what the value of their loans was, what the, value of, uh, what the value of their insurance policies was. They didn't know what was on their balance sheet. Now, that shouldn't be allowed, and you've just got to stop it. Um, and uh, so you can, approach, you can approach the management of uncertainty um, by simply stopping certain activities being done which would endanger the economy and which of their nature are uncertain. Um, and the rest you can, you can sort of allow to happen. I mean, I don't, I don't want to eliminate risk-taking. I don't want to eliminate uh, people making fortunes and going bust. But they mustn't be in institutions which can actually, whose activities can bring the economy down. They'd be fringe activities. Okay, I have um, here an outside next. Uh, Chris Brown, I'm a socially responsible property developer. Um, <laughs> What, what do you think of option pricing models? And if you think they're dead, what do you think financial markets will do without them? Socially responsible property development. Atar <laughs> from the London School of Economics. It may be a crisis of capitalism, but since there's no longer any alternative to capitalism, we still have capitalism after the crisis. The question I'd like to ask is this seems to be the crisis of the U.S. dollar as international cu currency. So what do you think is the future of the U.S. dollar? 
I think, I know I've got two pe more people, um, and I've got, gosh, I've got one, two, three, four. I think we can get everybody in. I want to ask a question. And so we'll do these three, and then we'll take the remainder. And my question is, does it matter what the stimulus is on and who makes the stimulus? In other words, that actually relates to the previous question. Yeah. Does it matter whether it's British spending or IMF spending or Chinese spending? That's three. Did you say there was one more? No, we've oh. had three. Okay. And then there, we'll have one last round when this three okay. is over. Okay. Well, um, you mean, does it matter what the stimulus is spent on? Um, yes. Okay. Yeah, I think it does. I mean, Keynes said, well, in, in, in purely macroeconomic terms, it doesn't. Uh, you know, he said, um, you, you, if you can think of nothing better to do, you just um, uh, bury, bury banknotes in, in holes and dig them up again. Um, or you spend it on useless things. Um, because still, the point is that it, that it gets expenditure going, um, and therefore it lifts the economy, even though the, the, even though the initial money is spent on useless things. Provided, I mean, you could have, you could have, I, I, I think, had you... Um, had you last Christmas, had the Treasury had the brilliant idea of giving every, every single person um, in, um, in, in, in Britain a £500 Christmas present, um, uh, um, uh, uh, which, which would consist of a, a, a voucher um, with, a, with a t an expiry date on it, um, which could only be spent on buying British goods. That answers, that answers one part of your question. Uh, we wouldn't have been in a recession today. Um, still, um, that depends on one or two assumptions, which are a bit dicey. But I mean, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a good thought experiment to think actually what, what would have happened um, had, had, had they done that. So I think it matters enormously um, uh, what you spend it on. And, 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 um, and uh, I think that. I would say that um, it would be much better to um, spend one's stimulus now on, on a medium to long-term investment program, it, provided it could be started reasonably quickly. For example, there's a, there's a, a great big uh, high-speed trade link that um, is, is, is now approved, running between London and Edinburgh. Um, and uh, I know um, Andrew Adonis has, has pressed that through the cabinet, and it's a very, very expensive program. Uh, the trouble is, you know, it's, it, it may not get going uh, quickly enough uh, to have any impact, and that's always been the trouble with, with um, investment programs, um, which um, uh, um, you have to devise um, uh, when the recessions hit, because they start, start operating, you know, after the recession is over. Um, so it, it's quite a good idea to have a portfolio of these investment programs, which you can sort of actually, for which all the approvals are already there, which you can implement fairly quickly, but we don't have that. Um, so, uh, but in, in principle, of course, um, you should, you should uh, spend it on things that will add, um, will add value um, social value to the economy and bring, and bring about a rate of return. That's what the Chinese are doing uh, now. So uh, it's a partial answer to, to, to your question. Um, 
uh, the crisis of the U.S. dollar, I'm taking them in reverse order, uh, well, this is, this is very important. Um, it's very important indeed, and I think that um, the uh, global imbalances have been a major contributory factor to the crisis because what what uh, what um, what what they did was was what what the um, in a way if you if you think of it in terms of a savings inve saving investment analysis there were a lot of savings being done in China and they somehow um, didn't actually produce um, uh, American uh, you know they, American investment didn't grow to absorb those savings there was another kind of mechanism by which the Chinese uh, government central bank bought US treasury bills and um, those had the effect of en enabling Greenspan to run a very very low rate of interest in the United States because the US government could borrow from, from the Chinese and therefore there wasn't a crowding out effect which otherwise would have led to a rise in interest rates. So it was a mechanism for um, avoiding deflation in the United States but at the cost of uh, uh, unbalancing the American economy even further. Um, and it, 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 it created asset bubbles in America rather than a steady growth of demand. The Chinese have been um, pressing for some internationalization of the reserve function, which would imply an end to the uh, hegemonic role of the dollar as a reserve currency. The Japanese have been supporting them. But we're not nearly there yet, because I don't think you could have that rebalancing without some agreement on exchange rates. And we're, 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 we're simply not, not, not there. Because what is the value of the, what, what is the relationship of the currencies that would prevent global imbalances uh, from piling up, either, either great deficits or surpluses? And uh, we, we, we haven't begun to discuss that, though I think there is a working party uh, on it. But the other thing is that the, the, the imbalances have suited both sides. And the Chinese have got export-led growth for an undervalued currency, as well as, in fact, some protection against another financial crisis, such as 1997 to 19A. And the United States have had the immense privilege of being the policeman of the world. And, um, and, um, and, and, and it suits lots of countries that America should actually be losing lives, defending freedom or whatever, um, rather than them. Uh, and uh, uh, the Russians, for example, are delighted that the Americans are in Afghanistan. <laughs> so, you can see there's a corrupt bargain here. So it has a geopolitical element as well as a straightforward uh, economic element. Now, the last point about, uh, from, from, um, from a question from a socially responsible property developer. Um, I'm sure you are. Um, <laughs> Well, you see, I mean, option pricing. Could you just explain what you, what you had in mind? A bit. Well, it seems to me that all of these, these sort of option pricing models really um, depend on, on the assumption that you can accurately price them. I don't believe you can. I think many, many options you can't accurately price. And, 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 and in fact, in fact, I mean, um, uh, when, when, I, uh, when I became director of, um, of an American um, mutual fund, I got lots of options, and I thought they were accurately priced. In fact, they're all underwater. Sorry, maybe my man is hurt. Okay, so 
auction prices. Option. 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 Uh, well, they work some of the time because, you see, I think, I think, I think Keynes's point was for a lot of the time, I mean, these, these constructions um, of, 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 of pricing, um, are, are, he, he called them mental, mental constructions. And as long as the conventions supporting them um, hold, then they work. I don't think they tell you very much about what fundamental, whether shares are at the uh, uh, securities are at their fundamental value, but if people believe that to be the case, then I think that's, that's compatible with a lot of stability in the financial markets. They're not always all over the place. What he's saying is that because they don't actually, the pricing doesn't reflect fundamentals. In fact, we don't really know what the fundamentals are over, over, a le over any length of time, and perhaps not even ever. Um, uh, they're liable to sudden overturn uh, because there's no s steady conviction to hold them. And they have all kinds of techniques for pricing um, securities accurately, but they all tend to break down. And you suddenly realize, as Alan Greenspan sa said, that risk was underpriced worldwide. How can that be if there were accurate option pricing models? You see, I mean, that's really what, what, what I'm... Now, we've actually only got two minutes left, and I have, I've forgotten how many. There's, there's one over there. There's, okay. Uh, yeah, I know, and there's this one up there. So let's, could you be really quick? I cannot, can't take all of you, because it's just impossible. And the gentleman down there, and the gentleman there, but. Um, well, I have three questions related to China. <laughs> Can you make it one? Because we're running out of okay, time. Okay, I'm short. All of them. So, um, well, the first one is, can China help the Western financial system by using its uh, surplus and help to recover? And what are the political implications of, at a global level? And can China become the ruler of the system and dictate new role, rules for a new game? And is this the I make, this, I make it three questions already. No, no, no. Th this is the last one. Is this? <laughs> promise. Cross my heart, I swear to die. This is the, the last one. And is this the end of neoliberalism? And can America... <laughs> have is that the end of neoliberalism? <laughs> and can America... And what? <laughs> The last one, I promise. And can the, the Federal Reserve um, finish to, well, should stop printing money and, uh, well, not create all these bubbles around the world? Thank you. <laughs> no, we do. But I think we've got enough. Norse <laughs> Ludowski, uh, I've read your book, and uh, all except the last chapter, many questions occurred to me. But uh, one occurred to me this evening as you were talking. Do you think that the inequality of incomes, which has so, become so tremendous, could in fact be alleviated if more power were given to shareholders uh, in uh, uh, corporations? It does strike me that uh, too much power is in the hands of pension fund uh, operators who are part of the city 
and part of remuneration committees, and therefore the heads of, of corporations tend to determine, I think, their own uh, remuneration. And a, a way which that could be avoided. And a final question yeah, there. Thanks. To what degree do you think the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act contributed to the severity of this crisis? Um, who, who asked that question? Sorry. He did. Um, what do I think it contributed to the severity of the crisis? Yeah, to what degree of severity did um, Okay. Um, I can be very short in answer to um, the China questions. No, no, no. <laughs> no, not good enough? Come, come and see me up. Do, do, do. Uh, but um, <laughs> um, actually, the, yeah, well, sorry, the last one, but I didn't hear the very last one. Um, is this the end of the neoliberal era? Yeah, I think it probably is in the form we've experienced it in the last um, 25 years. Could inequality be alleviated by um, giving more power to shareholders? Not really, I don't think. Um, I, I, wouldn't, I, I think the only way you can actually um, uh, mitigate or reverse the, the rise in inequality is through the tax system. Very straightforward. And I don't believe in uh, really the race to the bottom, uh, that if we, have a, if we have higher rates. I think we can, we, can, we can adjust the tax system in such a way as to help the poorest sections of the population without driving everyone who earns more than £50,000 abroad. You know, I mean, I think you can do it, and I think, that, yeah, I think there, there's too much alarmism about it. Anyway, we've got to. I mean, we can't, we can't uh, go on with wi con continually widening, widening inequality and with a stagnation of, me of, of, of average incomes because that, of course, does put people onto over-borrowing. I mean, it encourages indebtedness, you see. Um, now, um, the, the, what did, what did uh, the repeal of Glass-Steagall contribute it's, it's one of, it was one of the factors. I mean, I think what it did was it, um, it, uh, it abolished the distinction um, uh, between retail and, um, and, and investment banking and made banks gamblers with their depositors' money in a way that they hadn't been before. And, 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 um, and in fact, the, the investment departments of banks and, 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 the, and, the, and the rest of the banks were now just integrated to each other. And, and, and the point is that the, that the risky, the risky, I'm using the word risk because I can't think of a, another adjective, the uncertain, all right, the uncertain um, uh, 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 investments that the investment side of the banks uh, were making were, were um, really with money that was, was actually guaranteed by the Treasury. Um, both in the UK and, and, in, and, in, and the United States. And, and that shouldn't have been possible. I don't mind investment banks making risky investor, investments or uncertain investments with, with, with investors who expect that to be the case. But I do, do mind when, when, um, when, when, reta when, when, when retail banks uh, become um, uh, you know, casino-like. In, their, in, their, um, in, 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 their, in in the way they, they dispose of their depositors' money, and I don't think, and you know, it, 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 um, one example of it is the is, is the way the housing bubble developed, and and, and, and banks were simply um, giving mortgages out uh, on on 
on, on, on the ground that they, 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 they could securitize them and sell them, sell them on and, 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 um, and, and that they were safe and they weren't safe. So that wouldn't have been, I think, possible to nearly the same extent before the Glass-Steagall Act was repealed. Of course, there was securitization going on before that, but it was on a much a smaller scale. If you look at the data, once Glass-Steagall went, securitization, credit default swaps, they just skyrocketed. Okay, well, I think we've finally come to an end. What I should tell you before you clap is that the books are on sale outside, and if you bring them, if you want one, and if you want Robert to sign one, you go and get it, and you come back here, and he'll sign it. Very favourable price. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and yes. <laughs>